You may be seated. Sing it again. Let's uh, click on the next slide, Jerry. I didn't come up here to sing, I promise. All right. That line in there, too, sing like never before when you're doing YouTube music in the morning for a church. It uh, strikes a slightly different chord than maybe we intend, right? But what an opportunity we have to sing like never before. Amen? Amen, amen. So good to be with you here this morning. Just want to add my welcome to Pastor Brian um, and just uh, say how much of a joy it is for me to be here with you all today. Uh, uh, just coming together to worship. That's what we're here for. We're here to worship our Lord and our Savior and to praise His name and to sing His praise. So um, it is a great day for that, and it is so good to see you. And if anybody's online, I know we've got people traveling and, and sick. Uh, hopefully you're able to... to uh, join us online and still um, uh, join in this time of worship, too. We are continuing right now, too, in our series of what we believe and why we believe it. And as we hit this week, we pivot away from the topic of the Trinity and the persons of the one triune God, and we look at our statement of faith and what it says we believe about creation. So we're going to go ahead and we're going to look at Genesis chapter 1. That's going to be our text that we uh, use to look back to, to... Uh, to build a little bit of better understanding of why our statement of faith says what it does. So go ahead and open your Bibles up. Should be just the first couple of pages right there. Get to Genesis 1. I am going to read the entire thing from Genesis 1, okay? So stick with me for a few minutes. It's a little bit long, I know. 30 some odd verses, but we're going to read the whole thing. Uh, reading God's Word aloud together in church is a blessing. Amen? Amen. So let's go ahead and we will, we'll um, do that here in just a second. Genesis chapter 1. The Bible says this, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse, of, under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place, let the dry land appear. And so it was. God called the dry land earth. And the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, according to its kind, on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night, and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. 
And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of heavens, of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and let the birds multiply. And God saw that it was good, and God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful. And multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with its seed, with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I've given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Let's pray. Father, we come to your word right now, Lord, and we want to submit ourselves to it. We want to submit ourselves to what you say is true about yourself. We want to submit ourselves to what you say is true about creation, Father. So let us wrestle with, uh, with this right now. Let us wrestle with this text. Let us wrestle against the, the ideas of this world, Lord, that would sit there and try to... Uh, to draw us away from you, and I just pray that ultimately, Father, you just uh, show yourself today in the words that we, uh, we look at and the words um, that come out of my mouth today, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So as we do continue on through our statement of faith, we find ourselves at a topic that I think a lot of Christians avoid, and I think we avoid it because the modern world has wholesale rejected the account of creation that the Scripture gives us. This is a topic, if we are honest, if we try to engage in, we're going to be mocked. We're going to be mocked for it because the account of creation that God gives us is held in such derision as a topic that the modern secular culture has set its targets on, uh, on destroying it and destroying it through um, proclaiming its irrelevance, proclaiming that it doesn't align with modern understanding of the world. It doesn't align with our modern values and worldviews. And I think if we're honest, we see to a great degree, as we sit here in 2023, that they've been pretty successful. They've been pretty successful. I was in high school from 1998 to 2002, right? So right at the end of the 20th century, right at the beginning of the 21st century. And if you remember that time, which is only about 20 years ago, there was a raging debate going on in our country over what we taught kids in public school in science classes in regards to evolution and creation. You guys remember that time? That was a big deal back then, wasn't it? 
See, back then there was a popular movement to take the idea of creation and to make it more palatable to secularists who were pushing hard to eradicate any notion of creatures, the world, the universe that we inhabit, came into existence through a supernatural, special, creative act of an all-powerful God. That was the worldview, right, that pushes evolution as the reason for how we got where we are. And coming up against that one worldview, there was a second one that claimed this title of intelligent design, right? as being tossed around to this alternative. It wasn't just an alternative to the evolutionary worldview, but it was an alternative to the God's account of creation because rather than having a specific God with a specific account of creation, we had just a general intelligent designer who set things into motion that we can actually sit there and still push into classrooms without offending anybody's uh, religion or or worldviews, right? This was a time in our culture not that long ago, and this was a time where it was on TV, it was on radio, it was newspapers. This was an actual conversation that we were having as a culture as to what we taught our kids about the world and how we all got here. It's amazing to me that in the span of about 20 years, we've seen something that was so hotly contested something that created so much controversy and was covered so much in the media has essentially fizzled into nothing, as in that span of time, the world has moved on to accept the creation narrative of atheism without any questions to the status quo of the Big Bang or Darwin's ideas that he wrote about in his book on the origin of species by means of natural selection or the preservation of the favored races in the struggle for life. Just by the way, too, that is the full title of Darwin's work, right? Hold on to that little tidbit for the end because that's relevant, I think, for us when we examine these ideas in light of Scripture. See, right now where we're at today, anyone who questions these ideas, anyone who questions um, the Big Bang or evolution or how man got here and, and wants to suggest something different is labeled as a heretic and a fool because we have had the, um, the goal to question the God that they've named science. The science has spoken, which if we're really truly doing science, we're going to admit that science doesn't actually speak. It gives us a way to collect information, and it's the people that collect the information that speak on it. But no, science has been elevated as a god, and this god has his own creation narrative. And the atheistic narrative of creation is so prevalent now as the only acceptable story that we even see Christians abandoning the account that we have in Genesis to try to marry the ideas of the world that masquerade as science with God's Word and His revelation of how things came to be. We have Christians now that take Genesis 1 and rather than accept it for what it is and say it is the Word of God and we'll believe it and we've seen it and we've seen it play out to be true for thousands of years now, They've sat there and they've adopted a worldly philosophy that says that Christians just place their own biases into the text and they're believing what they want to believe about the creation narrative. That as Christians we look at Genesis and we willfully ignore evidence that in the world that sits there and tells a different story than what God has told us about creation. That's so prevalent that not only are we dealing with it from outside the church, we're dealing with it from inside the church as well. 
Christians are ostracized from this cultural conversation because the world, and like we just said, some cases the church, have accepted a false creation narrative that has been sold to us as observational science. And frankly, I'm still trying to figure out how Christians are accused of inputting their biases into the argument, but the atheists and the secularists who approach a topic are just allowed to go by unchallenged on the same grounds, right? That doesn't make logical sense. We're all bringing our ideas, we're all bringing our presuppositions, we're all bringing our biases to the table. It's not the question of whether we're coming neutral, because no one comes to this question neutral. The question is, what's the right answer? That's the question. There's so many bad ideas that exist when it comes to this issue, and so many of them are accepted as true in today's world, and we're just told now that we need to get in line and we need to leave behind the account that we've been given by God in His Word of creation. And while I do believe that God is an intelligent designer, and I imagine that when He spoke, there was probably a pretty big bang that went along with the words that came out of His mouth, speaking things into existence. And even though those things are, are true, we believe something much different about how matter and the universe and the world how plants and animals and human beings, how this amazing universe that we inhabit, we believe very different things about how it came to be. And with that, we believe very different things on why these things exist. And those are fundamental questions we have to wrestle with as Christians. Those are things we have to, we have to deal with, and hopefully we're going to deal with those things here today. So what does our statement of faith say about creation? It's up on the screen there too. This is directly from our statement of faith. It says, we believe God created the universe out of nothing by his word, and it was good. We believe in a historical Adam and Eve who were created in innocence, in the image and likeness of God. Our statement of faith on how we all see it is not a popular sentiment today, is it? It's something that we can't compromise, though, on, brothers and sisters. It's something that we can't look at and capitulate to the whims of the culture because creation is not a secondary issue for us. It is a primary issue that has massive implications on the message of the gospel and how we live our lives. So our main idea from Genesis 1 and our statement of faith for us, you can go ahead and click the next slide, Jerry. It's this, is that God has made all things. He made them good, and He is the King over this creation. That's it. That's why our statement of faith says what it does. That's what I hope we see from Genesis 1. And this is not merely a statement of theology for us, though. This matters. It absolutely matters for us in our life and in the practice of our faith. Because if you look at what that second slide says, since God is King... And we are His creation. We live according to His decree. If that's who He is and this is how we got here, then we have to answer to Him. We addressed to some degree already just a minute ago that this is not a popular idea. But we have to acknowledge that holding to a biblical understanding of creation and the way that it puts us at odds with our Western culture, which has fully embraced Darwinism, not only as the explanation for the diversity we see in creation, but as an explanation for why there's anything at all. 
is at odds with what we believe. It's at odds with what we have in the Scripture. You can click on over to the next slide too, Jerry. That'd be great. Even though we're, we're told we must accept this scientific explanation, we cannot abandon this topic. We can't walk away from it and act as if the importance for our life and for our faith and our practice is not there. About 10 years ago, Ken Ham, he's the president of Answers in Genesis Ministry. You know, they built the, the Ark Encounter in northern Kentucky, and they've got the Creation Museum there too. A lot of really cool stuff coming out of Answers in Genesis Ministry. He invited Bill Nye, right, the science guy, to come to Kentucky to see the Creation Museum and to have a debate on this topic. This is only 10 years ago. This is only 10 years ago. And there was so much criticism that Bill and I received from the open-minded uh, evolutionists because they were outraged that Bill and I would even show up for this debate because even entertaining the idea of creation the way the Bible describes it in a, in a debate was ludicrous because the idea and everyone who believes it affirms nothing more than a fairy tale. That's the criticism. That's the way the claim came from the open-minded free thinkers, Right? So much for being open-minded and thinking freely. We have to see, I think, right now that the creation narrative that exists around the idea of evolution is not one that can be supported uh, by Scripture. It's not one that can be supported by observational science. No one was present at the moment all things came to be. No one other than God, that is. And every idea put forward on all on how all things came to be, are statements that ultimately require faith to believe. The battle of ideas over creation is not a battle over science. It's not a battle over observation and evidence. It is a battle over the supremacy of God over His creation. God's Word paints a picture of how all things came to be. And that puts Him as the reason and the cause for everything. And that's why that first point we have on the screen is that this is not a popular idea not popular. People don't want God to rule and reign over them. They don't want to judge. We don't want somebody who's looking at us and, and who's going to sit there and condemn our actions rightfully one day when we stand before Him. This is a battle of worldviews because people reject God wholeheartedly. We run from God and we don't want Him ruling over our lives. That's why we have the development and the continued support for evolution. This is a creation narrative that has been crafted to build an alternative to God. It exists to replace God as the one who is creator. And these ideas are, are perpetrated to see the world become happy to reject the one who made them. And as Christians, we have to be ready to engage the ideas that are being hurled at us every day. And we must be ready to think about and process and examine these things. We can't just write it off. We can't just say, that's foolish. We have to sit there and we have to think about these things. And we have to come to the table and we have to explain to people what it is that God says. And why we need to believe the things we say we believe. Because we have a standard by which we examine these ideas. Right? This isn't just me saying we need to uh, look at these things. No, we have a standard. We have an objective source of truth that we must stand firm on. And if we don't, we're going to find ourselves trying to capitulate to a culture 
And we're going to try and find ourselves uh, trying to become more and more palatable to the popular ideas of today, which is what theories like evolution and the Big Bang are. They are just popular ideas of today. These ideas are going to be modified. They're going to be replaced. In the future, something else will raise up and explain creation and how we got here. That's the way science works. Science looks at information and evidence to build conclusions. And when new evidence comes, conclusions change. So these things that are being put forth as fact will change in the future. They will be modified. They will be, they will be replaced because they're popular ideas and not factual science. If we do try to reconcile worldly philosophies with what God tells us to be true in his word, we need to be very careful because we're going to lose our message of hope. We're going to lose this message of the gospel that we've been given. We're going to lose our purpose and our job, and we're going to be less effective reaching people who need to hear the message of Christ. Because people don't need to hear a watered-down version of who Christ is to try to make them feel a little bit better about themselves. People need to give up their lives. They need to deny themselves and and follow him, take up their cross and follow him. That's what we need. We don't need to water it down and come together to make something new out of these ideas. We need to say, this is what God says. This is what man says. Choose ye this day who you will serve. And we have to be honest with ourselves, and we have to admit right now, as we get bombarded by these ideas, that what God says is true, and what we have in our Bibles is true, and if it's not, if it's not, then we, and we can't stand on the sure word that we believe we've been given, then what we believe is a lie. God's word's true, is true, or it's not. That's what's at stake here. That's what's at the heart of this battle. It's not a popular idea, but we have to stand on the fact that God's word is supreme. And not just in our lives, but in the lives of every person who's ever lived across the face of the earth. This is the challenge that's laid down for us as Christians. Will we believe what God has said and will we stand firm on that in the face of a world that calls us fools? Or are we going to try to soften the double-edged sword that is God's Word? Are we going to try to take the Scriptures and make them line up with what the world tells us to believe rather than calling the world to submit to God and His Word? What's it going to be for us, church? For Faith Baptist Church, this is why we unashamedly say in our statement of faith that we believe God created the universe out of nothing by His Word, and it was good. And this is exactly what we see in Genesis 1. You can click on over the next slide, Jerry, for me. Genesis 1, I want to hone in on these three items as we kind of look back at the text today. God's eternal existence, why that's important for us. God's speaking everything into existence and the fact that it was good. And God making man unique from the rest of his creation. I think these are the three elements that are important to us as we examine our statement of faith and we examine Genesis to back up that statement of faith today, right? The ESV Study Bible has a note in it that describes the story of creation in Genesis 1 like this. It says it's something, it's, it's something that is structured into seven sections, each marked by the use of a set phrase. The entire episode conveys the picture of an all-powerful, transcendent God who sets everything in place and will consummate with skill in conformity 
to his grand design. I think that's a beautifully succinct way to explain Genesis 1 and what's going on there. God is all-powerful beyond anything that we can imagine, transcendent, and He's set apart from His creation. He's not like us. He's there before anything else is. And He speaks all these things into existence through His Word. He's not hammering away. He's not toiling away. He speaks and it happens. That's power. And He does this. He does this for nothing more than His own pleasure. God is God and He is in need of nothing. And we see right in the first verses of Genesis that He was. And He was all there was. And it was through this One that was and is that there was power to bring this universe into existence. This is an important part of God's character and nature for us to understand, but it's also an important part for us as we examine the claim of God as our King and our Judge over this creation. Let's think about this for just a minute, and let's examine that first point, right? God's eternal existence. God starts out Genesis 1 by saying what? You can look back at it, just that very first verse. What's it say? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I stopped for a purpose there when I read that. Because every time I read it, I just want to stop and say, in the beginning, God. Here we have an eternal God existing, as we've talked about the last month or so, in perfect unity as three persons, needing nothing to sustain Himself, requiring nothing from anyone else or anything, because nothing else, nothing else exists. It's Him, and it's Him alone. And He's present before this thing that we call time has come into being. God is the one who speaks the beginning into being, in fact. He is the eternal one who we read in Isaiah 46, is the one who declares the end from the beginning because He is God and there is none like Him. Here in this first sentence of Genesis 1, we see the eternal God by His own sovereign choice, by His own free will, decides for His own purposes to act, to speak space and time and heavens and earth into existence. There was nothing except for Him. He speaks. And now there's everything. What's the point? Why do we talk about this? Why are we honing in on this eternal nature of God? Because I think we have to understand that if God is the one who chose to put everything here the way that He did, and if He is the one who has the actual power to do it, If He's the one who has the power to put everything in place and everything we're looking at into existence, then it all belongs to Him. It's His. Because He chose to make this before it wasn't here. And He exercised His power and His authority and His choice to make something. And if you're the one who can do this, then there is nobody else that gets to tell you what to do. It's like a joking phrase parents like to use with their kids, right? I'm sure some of you heard this. Like, I brought you into this world. What's the second half of that? I'll take you out, right? Parents, you don't have that power and authority. Right? It's a joke. 
It sounds good when your kids are misbehaving, right? But you don't have that power and authority. You don't get to take your kids out of this world. God does. We joke like that as parents because we understand and we think that we have the authority because we brought something into existence, right? That we can cease its existence. But then we shake our fist at God when He claims the same right as His own. And it is His right. Only God, only God can do this. This is why God answers Job in chapter 38. If we looked at Job chapter 38, we would see God reply to Job starting in verse 4 like this. He looks at Job and he says, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy, Or who shut the sea with doors when it burst open out from the womb, when I made the cloud its garment, and thick darkness its swaddling band, and prescribed limits for it, and set bars and doors, and said, Thus far shall you come and no farther, and here you shall pound your waves, and here shall your proud waves be stayed? Have you commanded the morning since your days began, and caused the dawn to know its place? that it may take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like the clay under the seal and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld and their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this, Job. I think God makes it pretty clear who He is to us. God is eternal. He was and is. He is the cause and the reason for creation. And this means because of who we see Him to be in Genesis 1, we submit to Him and to His Word and not to our own preferences, not to our own ideas, not to our own orientations, not to our own theories, not to anything this world tells us to submit to. We bend the knee to Christ and only to Christ. God creates here in Genesis 1. We see Him throughout the chapter bringing everything into existence by speaking it. It's eternal God there with all power and glory and majesty choosing to make things. He doesn't make things by toiling. If I want to go make something at home, I'm going to get out hammer and nails and saws. And in about 20 minutes, Dorn's going to see me sweating out there, right? It's not going to take long where I'm going to be struggling. God speaks, and it is. Yahweh is not here in creation rearranging pieces on the board. He's not taking matter and organizing it, organizing it into something else according to what He thinks it should be. No, He is here in the act of creation making things out of nothing by simply saying, let there be. And I make that distinction because especially amongst the cults, there are lots of views on how the world came to be that will sit there and say that God just sort of took matter and made it into what we see it. No, that is not the God we worship. God spoke everything out of nothing. We see that in verse 3. God says what? He says, 
let there be light. And what happens in that in verse 3 when he says, let there be light? There was light. Verse 6, God says, let there be an expanse. What happens? And there was. Verse 9, God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place. And it was so. Verse 11, let the earth sprout vegetation. And it was so. Verse 14, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And it was so. All these things he is speaking into being, merely by the word he is bringing creation to be. There's not effort, there's not a struggle. There is pure, perfect power taking nothing and making it something that we look at and we describe as beautiful, that we describe and the way God describes it as good. I think that statement, as God says line by line and verse by verse, these things that He creates are good, is important because He's telling us that there's a quality to the creation that He's made, right? This all-powerful God who's bringing everything into creation and is making these things, they're not bad. They don't need some more work. They're not imperfect. They're not unfinished. They are good. They are to be enjoyed. They are to be appreciated. This creation represents the nature of its creator. Because in this creation, we see beauty and we see majesty and we see the power as we stand at the edges of the ocean and we think about how vast it is and we can't comprehend it. And we stand at the foot of mountains and we look up and we can't comprehend what it would be like to stand at the top. We see beauty and power and majesty revealed to us in God's creation. And it tells us that this, it tells us something about the one who made these things. I can't make that, right? Humans make some pretty tall buildings, right? We can't replicate what God does. Even in our best efforts, we can't replicate what God does. I think this beauty and majesty we see in creation is why today we still see the goodness of creation shine through from time to time even though the curse of sin stains what God has made to be good. This is why when it warms up, right? Hopefully what, next week? Is that coming next week? Am I too optimistic? Yeah, I'm probably too optimistic. All right, and uh, in June when it finally warms up and you go to Holland State Park at sunset, good luck finding a parking spot. Why? Why? Why are hundreds and hundreds of people crowding into this park at this time of day? Because when you go and you see that giant light falling, disappearing behind what looks to be the farthest edge of this beautiful body of water, and it paints this picture of blue and yellow and red and orange, that only the, great, the greatest artist in human history could ever even imagine to dream of painting. And it does this every day. Day after day. We can stop, and we can look at that, and we can go fight for a parking spot to try to see it. Because when we see it, we just say, wow, God, you are amazing. You are good. God is good. And by extension, 
the creation that he speaks into existence reflects the character of its creator. And that's not an inference for us, right? Because God tells us. He says, I see this thing I made. It's good. It's good. The Bible gives us no room for doubt here in Genesis 1 as how creation came to be. It is purely by the Word and the power of God creating something from nothing for no reason other than His own divine purposes. And everything He's made to this point, He has proclaimed to be good. And here comes the amazing part, is that's not the end of it. Because at the end of Genesis 1, as this time of creation that God has uh, undertaken comes to an end, the pattern we see in the chapter follows God um, making something, declaring it good, having evening and morning, and delimiting these periods as days. Right, So we see this pattern where God makes, and He's moving towards this final day of creation. I think it is important too, I, I don't want to get sidetracked, so I'll make this quick, to understand that we see these days and we see God describe these things as days. Um, and there is some controversy over uh, um, genuine Christians over what the word day means in there, right? Um, the historical understanding of a day in this context would be that we understand it as a literal 24-hour period. And there are others now, too, that sit there and argue that this day means more like an age of time that could be significantly longer than 24 hours. And I think there's two quick things to keep in mind on that right now. Is that one, that generally when we argue this position, you're adjusting the meaning of, the age, of day to age of time to try to make creation more palpable to secular and atheistic ideas that would sit there and argue for the earth being billions of years old, right? So that's item number one. The second item that we have to remember is that or that we have to think about is that each period being labeled a day finishes with there was evening and there was morning. And God is speaking these things into existence and they just are. There's no labor or toil on God's part as he's making this thing. And so I believe that this tells us the understanding for us is that days of creation are these shorter periods of time the way that we would think of a day, right? Of a 24-hour period and not these extended ages of thousands or millions of years. I think this is an important uh, thought to drop in there, not to take us too far off, um, but God does follow this pattern here where he speaks, it comes into existence, evening and morning, and you have the conclusion of a day. Hold on to those thoughts just a little bit too because they'll, they'll be important as we get to the end as well. As we've gone day by day, right, as... God has hit day by day, day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, day six. We come to this final day of creation that God has given us. And at the, the end of this final day, on the sixth day, the final thing we see God make is something that stands out as unique from the rest of his creation. He makes humans. He makes man and he makes woman. And the Bible tells us that the creatures that he makes here are not like the rest of his creation. Genesis 1, verse 26, God says, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and every creeping thing that creeps the earth. 
So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. This final piece of God's creative work at the end of day six is a creation that we're told is made in God's image. This creature has the ability to think and to reason, the ability to communicate and to build, the ability to to imitate God in ways that other creatures cannot. These creatures have a responsibility for caring for the rest of creation. They've been given dominion over this creation by God. Here God makes these first two human beings from whom all other humans will descend. These two people will interact with God's creation in ways that the rest of creation does not. God gives Adam and Eve specific commands they must follow, and He gives them a will that is different from just an instinctual nature of the rest of creation. And at the end of Genesis 1, He sees these people, and He sees His garden, He sees this planet and this universe He's spoken into existence, and He's seen it all, and He says, it is very good. Very good. God's made everything out of nothing. He did it merely by speaking it. And now we see these unique creatures that He's made that are imitators of His image, that are like His image. If we want to be people that hold to the Bible as the inerrant, infallible Word of God, I think if we look at Genesis 1, we have no other option than to say, Yahweh is the maker of heaven and earth, and any other attempt to explain all that we see and all the things that exist, all the things that exist and all the things that we or all the things that exist that we don't see, got here to be oh, boy, that note was off there, sorry. All of these things that we see, all of these things that exist right now, came here by the power of his hand. This is not a man-made myth. This is God telling us, I made it all. I made you. Come to me. Creation is a supernatural one-time event lasting the course of six days where the eternal God took nothing and by the power of His Word spoke everything into existence. The final thing that He made on that six-day span were the first two human beings who we see are distinct from the rest of creation having been made in the image of God. Why does this matter? Why do we have to sit there and accept this creation narrative as the true one and reject others? Why can't we wash down what God says and add in elements of, say, the evolutionary idea, evolutionary ideas? Why do we have to sit there and draw a line in the sand on this and say we're going to reject the ideas that are widely accepted by the world we live in and we're going to stand on the Word of God for our understanding of how we got here. You can click on the next slide, Jerry. I think the reason, first and foremost, is that our ideas have consequences. See, when we reject the creation narrative of the Bible for man-made ones, we begin to leave behind important elements that we're to take from creation on how we are to treat one another, to the reason and the purpose to why we're here and why we exist, and to what our cause, or what, what the reason for our lives is, right? Think about it this way. If you look at the 20th century, historians call that the bloodiest century of all of history. 
two massive world wars. Socialism and communism taking over large swaths of continents in the east. And in their wake, mass murder. These ideas like socialism and communism, these ideas have atheism as one of their core foundational principles. And we saw what happens in the Soviet Union, and we saw what happens in communist China when people reject the idea that man is made in the image of God. There was no God here, and so the state became God, and the state decided who should live and who should die. And at the end of it, 90 million people were dead. I know it's a moment in history that we look at and saddens us to think that that much life was lost. But we still deal with this issue today, don't we? We still deal with an issue on the sanctity of human life and the way we view life and the value of it, the value that God has placed on it. I think rejecting God's creation narrative and who we are as people being made in the image of God has left us with the, with the, um, the problem that we have today of abortion in our country. There is no creator who's going to hold us accountable when we sin against one another. And if there is no intrinsic value to human life, then if you don't want a baby and you're pregnant, just kill it. Come to the abortion center and just do away with it. Creation speaks to us a value to human life that doesn't come from what I give you or what I can produce, but it comes from our creator. Turning from God and forsaking our understanding that He is Creator, it leads us to abandon His created order. We just talked about how that includes a, a forsaking the image of God in the lives of men. But this created order has other implications for us too, right? We have to live our lives according to His Word, the way He's called us to treat one another, the way He's called us to act, the way He's called us to worship. It puts us under His rule and His judgment. It means that would we reject the idea that there is a God who demands we love our neighbors and ourselves, who demands that we respect one another's life and property? It leaves us with no king to be ruled by, and it opens the door for us to act in all manners of lawlessness because it removes God as the creator of things, which removes Him as the righteous judge of all things too. And knowing that God is our righteous judge and He calls us to love our neighbor, to love our enemy, to love our wives, to love our husbands, to not provoke our children to anger. Knowing that He's called us to live in this particular way means that we would have to stand before Him and answer to Him in these things one day. Right? But if He's not the Creator and we're all here by random chance, then we have to admit that leaves the door open to saying, I guess anything goes. And I know some people would say that that's a straw man, but I don't think it is. Because we're left without a judge. We're left without any objective standard when we remove God as the creator of all things. Ideas have consequences. And when we reject God as creator, it leaves the door open for us to live our lives however we see fit, shaking our fists at His face in spite of his commands that we know of what are good for us and what are ultimately good according to his command. The second point for us 
of why this is important right now is that this is a gospel issue, brothers and sisters. This is absolutely a gospel issue. Creation is a core part of the story of God that we still live out today. This is why in our statement of faith we say we believe in a historical Adam and Eve. Because death did not enter into creation naturally when God made things. God made things good. There was no death. There was no hurt. There was no pain. This was a perfect garden. Adam and Eve were together with none of those things that we experience on a day-to-day basis, right? But Adam and Eve, through their rebellion, brought this curse of death into the world. This is completely incompatible with the idea of evolution. Evolution says all creatures got here because there was one tiny little cell that somehow came alive one day, and somehow after that figured out how to reproduce itself, and then somehow figured out after that how to go from being just one cell to being made up of lots of cells, and then somehow after that figured out how to grow extra parts to itself, and then somehow after that figured out how to reproduce again, this time not by itself but with two involved. And ultimately, that's the way we get everything we see here today. That's how we get everything around us. I'm really sorry. I just don't have faith to believe that. This is the process that is the popular one of our day that says that billions of years of death are required. That this struggle for life is how we get to this point of the evolutionary state we see around us. That doesn't fit with God's, with God's gospel. Well, there's numerous problems with this narrative of creation that evolution pro- provides that I'm always happy to discuss and may lead to some fun conversation after this downstairs as we eat lunch. I don't think today we need to, uh, we don't need to see that, I think today the important part is that we see that the process of evolution does not and cannot fit with the story of the gospel. Because letting evolution and the worldview it holds creep into the church, it changes the message of hope we have in Christ and eternal life. It changes the message that we have to share with people, right? Because think about it this way. If there is not a historical Adam and Eve with a real tree, with a real command to not eat, in a real garden, then we have no gospel message. Because that's where it starts. With our first parents rebelling against God. 1 Corinthians 15, 21, 22, Paul writes this, For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Adam brought death into the world. Christ came to bring life to the world. Christ came to fix what Adam broke. And if we sit there and we capitulate to the modern ideas that are pushed on creation, pushed on us in creation, we lose our message of hope, of eternal life. Don't give that up. Last thing I want to make a point of real quick. This is important right now why we can't give up this narrative of creation because creation reveals God to people. We just said we have this message of good news and hope that we want to see go out to all the nations to see people saved, to know that their death is not the end of their lives, but that they get to stand before their Creator and they get to be called righteous. 
Not because of their works, but because of what Christ has done for them. Right? This is the message we have of hope. That death is not the end for you. Not only that, we get to be in fellowship with our Creator forever. The first door that should open people's eyes to our need for God is when we see the beauty and the immensity and the wonder of God's creation. Because when we look at that, we can't help but admit that we are just tiny little ants and we see death and we see things dying in creation and it messes with our emotions and it stirs our soul because something doesn't feel right about it. We're dying. We know we are. We know it's coming. And we know something's wrong. And our souls fight against it. And it frightens us. It's because ultimately we know we need to be reconciled to God. We know that we don't want to die. We don't want to feel the physical pain. Even Jesus didn't want to feel the physical pain of that. But we know that when we close our, our eyes and we open them again, we'll be standing before this one who's made this world around us that's big enough for us, for our tiny little brains and souls to handle. Now we're standing before the one who made it all? It's terrifying. And creation, creation is the first piece that God uses to continue to reveal himself to human beings, right? Romans 1, 20-23 says this, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds, and animals, and creeping things. Anybody ever wondered why there's idols in every culture across the face of the earth? All these peoples, from like one end of this massive planet to the other, that's still even with air travel, it would take me an entire day to fly to India. How did the native people who are here have these idols and these systems of worship from people that were essentially an eternity away in India? Because we're made to worship. Because we have a creator who put that in our hearts to seek after him, to see this world around us, and to know that this thing didn't just happen by random chance. God reveals himself to his creation. His creation screams to us there's a creator. And he tells us that we should seek him out because look at all that he has made. tells us his divine nature, his eternal power have been clearly perceived in the things that have been made. That's why we have idols across the face of the earth. We can't help but look at his creation and acknowledge that there is a creator behind it. Our problem is we reject him. We run and we hide from him. We disobey him. And from that we bring nothing but hurt to ourselves and to the people we love around us and even the people we don't love around us. This is why we need the gospel. This is why we need Jesus who brings reconciliation between God and men for their rebellion. And this Jesus who is king, who was there, who was present, who was the word being spoken to bring everything into existence, 
Not only has He promised reconciliation through His sacrifice on the cross, but He's promised to bring a restoration of this creation, right? Even for the good things we get to see, it's still not there in its perfect state like it was. We still have to deal the effects of the curse of sin that man has perpetrated. But Jesus is coming to restore it to the full goodness that it was in Genesis chapter 1. And we can't give up. We can't give up the story of creation to a world that doesn't find it palatable. We can't give that up and give it over and mix it with other ideas or other things because it is a part of God's story for us to know who He is, for us to know who we are, and for us to understand how desperately we need Him. This is why we say we believe what we do about creation. There's elements we didn't touch here today that we could sit there and discuss. There's elements, again, too, that I think that don't necessarily cross a line. I don't think they become a secondary issue, but I think genuine brothers and sisters in Christ read this and they want to understand it, and sometimes it's a struggle. But we can't give up what's true, what we see God say is true. He is the Creator. He made it all. Once put it in place, not over a period of billions of years. He made it. He spoke it. He put it into existence one time and for all. And we broke it. We done messed it up, right? Thank God for the Gospel. Thank God that He sends His Son to reconcile us, to atone for our sin. And one day we're going to get to see this creation in all of its glory that He made it back in Genesis 1. Let's pray. Father, we come to you right now, Lord, as we get ready to come to the Lord's table, and I just pray that the words of Genesis 1 would just ring in our ears right now, Lord. God, let us see that your creation story is beautiful. Lord, we have the best and greatest creation story of anyone who sits there and tries to come to the table for this, God. What a, what a glorious thing that you've done and made, Lord, and the way your divine power and your attributes speak to us, even still to this day, Lord. We praise you for that, God. Let us just see your glory and let's just stand in awe and wonder of you, Lord, as we stand on the banks of Lake Michigan, Lord, as we stand at, at the foot of mountains, Lord, as we stand beneath waterfalls, Father, as we just gaze at the creatures that you made, Lord. Lord, we're just tiny little creatures in your hands, Father. Lord, we just lay it all down at the feet of the cross today. And just pray, Lord, that you just continue to reveal yourself to us more and more. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.